The CIO who says, I want to have a major impact, the first thing is look at your resume. Make sure that your resume has business impact, change, digital data. How have you created data as an asset for your business? Welcome to the CIO Exchange podcast, where we talk about what's working, what's not, and what's next. Meeting Porter DeLeon. CIOs and other technology executives are now expected to help drive the business, not just support it. Heller Search is an executive search firm that places technology leaders in the right opportunity for them across all industries. In this episode, I speak with Martha Heller, CEO of Heller Search Associates, to find out how her team excels at navigating the IT talent market and connecting individuals to the right companies. Martha sheds light on how the pandemic has changed the rules for recruiting and clients, including what companies have to do now to retain top talent. Martha also describes what is required of technology leaders to be impactful, how they need to look at their career development, and how roles in technology are shifting. Martha, I'm excited to talk to you today because I'm, it fascinates me the dance between candidate and company, how you talk to individuals, how do you make the match between somebody who's looking for a new opportunity, that new next adventure, that new next chapter. And it's very, it's not just professional, it's also very personal as well. And then the company who's trying to find someone who's going to add the kind of value that they're looking for, that there's a, a defensing of culture. There's also a augmentation of culture. It's this really sort of fascinating sort of ritual of bringing two entities and individuals personalities together as a part of a team, as a part of a company. Give me a sense of how do you approach this? How did you get into this and how, what makes you passionate about that dance? So I really appreciate your saying that because I agree with you. Recruiting is just fascinating. And I'll just, something personal about myself is that every year throughout my career, if I start the year and I say, I'm not going to learn anything new in this job this year, I'll move on. I'll move on. Right. Time for something else. Well, I've been in executive search since 2005. I have one time left a company and started my own, but I've stayed in it. And the reason is because it is so fascinating. You do learn something every single day because there's a different business model, a different culture. Every candidate has a different story. No search goes exactly the same way so that it's always fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then to your point, Yadin, you know, people, as much as I try to change this, people continue to have free will. And so if you're... Darn I them know, and their free will? Or, <laughs> what are they Or thinking? maybe they don't. Maybe it's all just fate and destiny. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really sure. But you know, you can do everything on a search and, and then in the 11th hour, somebody's spouse doesn't want to relocate or somebody got a counter offer they never expected that they were going to get. And that happens even more so mm-hmm. these days, given such a tight market. And so just, yeah. you know, I mean, what makes life interesting is the people in it and your connection to the people in it. And in executive search, that is pretty much all you do is connect to people. So just to delve a little bit more deeply into, into the response to some of the questions that you asked, as a broker, yeah, we get paid by the client, but we still have to make sure that the candidate has not only a good experience with us, but also lands really well in the organization. So even though the bills get paid by our client, the hiring companies, we have to do right by those candidates. So just going into Mm -hmm. a a new search, it's understanding that this has to be a win-win-win for everybody and and getting to know everybody's agendas and their their culture and what they're looking for in their career. Just got to get really in and get to know people really quickly and really confidently 
And that's how you wind up with, with a successful result. But one thing I will tell you is we can do all of that right. We place a candidate and then things change in that organization. And in the end, that candidate doesn't work out. So I think mm-hmm. having a th- it's changing, all, it's the changing time. all the time. And I think having a really thick skin in executive search is one of the probably most critical attributes. Yeah, I think that's really important. One of the things I think that was critical too was talking about how everyone need to have a good experience. The experience, I think, is a really critical part of that. And so those, you know, when you're working with a CIO, a CTO, a CISO, and you're placing them and they're the candidate, they're looking to decide whether or not they want to join the company, but also proving to the company that they have what it takes in order to provide value to that company. I think it's really great perspective for those who are the candidates to understand that the recruiter is really trying to give them the best experience, not only for that fit prospect that you're talking about, but also I would imagine too, and you can kind of give me a perspective on this, but some of those candidates are going to be your future clients. Exactly, They're going to be the ones who are then going to come back to you and say, hey, I had a great experience. I need to use her again for this other leadership position that we're trying to look for. Is that something you experience? Well, actually, you know, it's it's really wonderful because with executive search, delivery to the client is essentially the same as doing new business development in the market. Because every time you call a potential candidate, mm-hmm. you are developing potentially a, a future client to your point. Yes. So that's why the experience has to be so good. But years ago, one of my very first searches was for a very large media business in New York City. And I was, believe it or not, this was like 10 years ago, and the title of the role I was recruiting actually had the word digital in it. I think of that digital as fairly recent, but now I'm remembering about (laughs) a decade ago, I did a a role, you know, a digital uh, solutions leader or something. And I called two CIOs I knew in the space who might know somebody, and both of them said, actually, we're looking for one of those too. And before I knew it, by the end of the day, I had two new searches. So in executive search, when you're delivering to the client, you're essentially also building a new client list at the same time. So that experience has to be really good for everyone. And just going back to the experience thing, what I hear when I hear sort of complaints about other search firms and recruiters and that kind of thing, it's a lack of communication. Mm-hmm. It's if the client is, say, maybe putting that that candidate on the back burner because they want to meet a few people and the recruiter doesn't go and engage that candidate pretty mm-hmm. frequently, that's when the bad experience happens. And even worse, that's when the candidate decides to walk. So yeah, keeping, a, keeping <laughs> them engaged in the recruiting process is probably the most important skill when you're recruiting. It's, it's keeping those candidates warm. What really interests me about that piece is, is that candidates may seem like they're sort of this you know, power asymmetry or information asymmetry when they're looking at these particular opportunities and they're, okay, I'm being evaluated, or there's a very traditional view of this is how the interview process, this is how the courting process goes. When in fact, really, especially like you mentioned in this market too, that asymmetry is starting to become in certain circumstances, a thing of the past. And you do need to engage really well with those different candidates and ensure that their needs are being served in a way that, I don't know if if you give me perspective on this, but in a way that maybe just hasn't existed in the past, like especially in technology firms. I mean, this is a little bit niche here in technology firms in this particular market, there seems to be that shift in, I don't know if you'd say power dynamic or information asymmetry. I don't know how, how do, what do you feel like that, that, that shift, how, how that shift's happening? Sure. I would say at this moment, it is absolutely a candidate's market. 
We'll see what happens, right? With the economy shifting, we'll see. Now, all we do at Heller Search or technology executive search roles, is in it. we're in every industry, but we're only dealing with the technology leadership position. And turns out technology is kind of important. So, <laughs> Just a I am, bit. <laughs> so I am optimistic that as the economy shifts here and there's maybe a little bit of a leveling out, I am optimistic that the technology functional market will not be impacted because, look, in downtimes, you need analytics even more than you did in uptimes. In downtimes, you need really, really good communication technologies more than you did in uptimes. So I think we're going to stay really strong. But for right now, it is absolutely a candidate market. And I would say the way that changes things for us, one, it's client expectations management. We want someone who costs this much, who will already live in this place because we don't want to relocate them. We want them to have this kind of experience, this many years of experience, and we really want a diversity candidate. It's like, okay, it's a tight market. (laughs) You can't have all those things, or you you can, but Mm you got to open your wallet. So in a market, as you point out, where the power dynamic shifts to the candidate, our job is client management. So they really understand what's happening in the market. And then I would say the fundamental shift that we've made for this market, in addition to just moving as quickly as we can, is when the candidate says, yes, I will accept an offer from your client for their CIO position. And I will not accept a counter offer to stay here because I am ready to leave. You cannot take that at face value. They mean it. But what companies are doing to retain high value candidates today is very different in the past. I'll just give you two examples of that. Oh, no, this is great. One is, See, this is the secret sauce. This is what I want to hear. <laughs> one is we were doing a search for a high tech business and the CTO who had accepted the offer went in you know, to resign. The reason he wanted to move on was because there was a ceiling <laughs> above his head. The person he reported to wasn't going to leave anytime soon. That person actually resigned in order to retain the candidate. In other words, he said, you know what, I'll retire early so that this person, this high value talent will, will remove that ceiling and they can take on this new job. I've never in my millions of years in this career seen companies have their senior executives retire early to retain someone. Well, that was a kind of counter offer I've never seen before. And in the end, that mm-hmm. candidate wound up staying. That's something. Now, may, you know, now what we do is we really drill down more. And we also caution the client that candidates are going to be more susceptible to powerful counter offers yeah. than they have in the past. Here's one other thing that I think is very interesting right now. In the past, when we're doing a search and we're reaching out to candidates, if someone's just recently taken a role, say in the next last one to two years, unless we know something, we don't want to reach out to them. We might ask for referrals, but we figure they just took a job. They're not going to want to leave anytime soon. And our client is going to be suspicious of someone who's left a, a role as, so, so quickly. However, in the pandemic, the rules are different. Often people t- who took roles during the pandemic, so basically from, let's call it April 20 to April 22, 
are actually more vulnerable to leaving than in the past because they're working remotely. So they haven't really built a relationship yet. They haven't really become a part of the culture yet. Maybe they took a job under duress because of the pandemic. So a big shift is, as a recruiter, don't assume that if someone took a job in the last two years, you can't touch them. Those people who took jobs during the pandemic are more susceptible to being recruited than they would have been in the past, if that makes sense. No, that does make sense. That's really interesting too, because that is, and maybe even so, and, and you can give me your perspective on this, they're in this sort of flux period where people left or people made transitions or changes because they were looking for something different, a new lifestyle, a new way of working, a different industry, and they might still be in that search, that discovery, that period of discovery. And so they're like, I might say someone for six months, for one year. And they said, you know what? I don't want to do this. Let me try something else for six months or one year. Are you finding that as well? What I'm finding is that the whiplash of the pandemic and its impact on the workforce, on recruiting, and now on the economy has so many twists and turns that I don't think we're really going to be able to understand the impact until we're able to look back. Mm -hmm. What I'm seeing now is just, I mean, things like our, our time to fill used to be a full three months, maybe a little bit more than three months from the minute we have a approved position description to when that candidate accepts an offer. You would think in this tight market, everything would take longer. It's considerably shorter now because all of the first and second round interviews are all happening on Zoom. We used to fly people mm -hmm. around all over the place. It would take yeah. forever. It could take weeks before you could even get that first round of interviews completed. Now, we're actually finding that our time to fill is faster because of the impact wow. of the dynamic of, of the of the pandemic, even though you would think that things would take a lot longer because of how tight the market is. So there are so many differences in the market, in how we recruit based on the pandemic that, again, I think in a couple of years, we'll be able to look back and say, okay, that's how it all shook out. I don't think we're there yet. I see a book in this, Martha. I see a book here. <laughs> So Good. you can start to write this right now. Put it you out. Got it. You I'm got just putting it. it out there. Excellent. Well, this is fascinating perspective. Let's shift gears a little bit too, because I want to have some time where we kind of cover what it takes to sort of fill these roles. Because it, you know, like you said, it, things have happened in the last decade. You're talking about like sort of the first title with digital in it being like a decade ago, and the, yeah. the difference between what was required for somebody back then is just just a, there's like massive chasm in you know those requirements then versus now. You might have somebody who's far more of an IT functional technologist who's filling one of these like CIO roles or CTO roles. And now you need someone who's a leader, who's a business person, who's all these different things that you never really required of this technology leader before. Could it give first, just give a little bit of perspective on your that journey that you've seen, like the CIO role and the other roles in the office of the CIO, that shift that's happened historically, and then kind of give me a sense of what's required now. Sure. So let's think about it this way. In this country, for hundreds of years, we were all farmers. We had an agrarian economy. Back in the good old days. <laughs> Not for, I don't think I would have been a great farmer, but you anyway. You, need, you, didn't need, you didn't need back office IT back then. Nobody was building exchange No, you do now. now. You do, do now. You do. I mean, farming now is highly technical. Yes. They're doing yes. tremendous <laughs> amount with analytics and farming. But oh, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we became an industrial economy in the late 18th century. And that's when we set all this up. We set up our democracy. We set up our companies. We have boards of directors. We have bigger footprints, more train tracks, more ships, everything 
everything bigger, bigger, bigger. Well, we're not in the industrial economy anymore. We're in the digital economy now, or maybe even the data economy, but we haven't made dr dramatic changes in the way our companies are organized. But when you think about it, today, every company in one way or another is a technology company. So just as an example, when Cargill which is like a $180 billion agricultural business or something like that, when they started putting IoT and sensors in their shrimp ponds, in their farms, in order to better predict yield and that kind of thing, the CIO there did not call other food and agricultural businesses to compare notes and to say, hey, where does IT stop and where does this product technology start? He called the CIO of SAP and the CIO of Microsoft. So here you've got the CIO of Cargill. That's a big shift. Calling software businesses to get their perspective on how you design organizations around this. Because the CIO, he's, he's retired, but the CIO of Cargill just a year and a half ago was thinking like a software company CIO, not like an agricultural CIO. And you see that across all different kinds of industries. So if if we're all in a company whose products and services are more and more dependent on software and on data, and we all are, that means we all need to be a little bit IT, a little bit data, a little bit business. We all have to be these cyborgs who can be our own data analysts, who can be our own technologists. So the dramatic shift that I'm seeing is CIOs recognizing that they need to get out of the business of delivering data and software unto their users who then consume it, and they need to design an organization that democratizes IT and democratizes data. I love that perspective, Martha. That's just phenomenal because I've, I've had so many conversations with CIOs who talk about how other people in the organization need to be on the hook for technology. Yes. And instead of saying, I need to then design and, you know, and innovate and do all of these things, which are part of sort of the, the, the charter, but what really makes a big impact, and we're really talking about impact here on the business and the business value that's created is creating an organizational, a cultural movement, you know, a way in which you can programmatize the thought processes uh, and the strategy around how to approach problems from a technology perspective. Exactly. And the design of that. But it's more than the design because you've got to create it. That, to me, is one of the most important roles of a CIO more than being very deep technically, more than delivering a piece of software. It's all of that. So a CIO I know from Semiconductor put it this way, which I really liked. He said, when you take the concept of data, which is of course a huge concept and incredibly important to every company right now, he said, think of it this way. In IT, our data engineers are the butchers. They take <laughs> the big cuts of meat and they cut it down into the size that customers are going to want. And the customers come in, they choose their meat, and they go home and they make their own meals. They're not calling the butcher to say, deliver a meal to me. Mm -hmm. So the democratization of data, the democratization of IT is where IT is creating the environment, the governance, the guardrails 
to allow everybody in the company to be their own data analyst, to be their own technologist. I'll give you one more example to drive this home. This was the CIO of Lear Corporation, Bonnie Smith, when she was there. She found that in all these 270 global manufacturing plants, that the plant managers were doing their own RPA, robotics process automation tools and, and solutions. And she said, we're going to be reinventing the wheel all over the place here. Let's try to get organization design down and a governance structure so that everybody can be their own RPA developer, essentially, but we're going to put in the tools for them. We're going to inventory what they're doing. So if somebody in a plan in Germany is doing something that somebody in a plan in Brazil is just thinking about, they can be connected so that they can work together and not have to sort of follow the same, you know, stub their toe on the same rock twice. And so what she did is she built an RPA self-service structure. Well, what did it entail for her, to, for her to do that? It wasn't technology depth. She had to make sure that she could find the vendors that would work in that capacity, which is new. She had to figure out who were going to be the people who were in each plan who were really going to be her allies, who were going to be the first adopters of this technology. She had to get her team to stop thinking about delivery and think more about governance and design. Not one of those attributes or skills is very technical. Mm -hmm. It's influence, it's design, it's strategy, it's relationships, it's leadership. So the move to the democratization of data or the democratization of IT is really about leadership, influence, design, and governance. It is not about being a deep technologist. Now, that being said, there are many examples of companies that very much need their CIOs to be deep technologists. A lot of it depends on where they are in their life cycle of technology. Yeah, and I think part of that responsibility, like you were talking about before of the CIO and others within the office of the CIO, is helping others in the organization increase their aptitude when it comes to technology so that you're not needing a CIO who has all the deep technical skills in order to be the one who has all the right answers in the room, but instead they're enabling others to be able to go off and, and do those types of, or make those types of decisions on their own because they're competent in that particular, in their particular realm, in their business unit, in their capacity, and they have enough technical chops in order to, to make good, solid technical decisions. And that kind of goes back to that point that I really wanted to dig into. And I love the way that you framed it as a democratization of technology or democratization of IT, because that really then gives license to the rest of the organization and also gives a responsibility to the rest of the organization to say, look, we need to not just look at this one person or this one role or this one silo to have all of technology and applications and services provided to us, but we need to be able to participate in that. And we need to be able to create what you were talking about, which is a self-service platform. And the reason that fascinates me so much is because that's been talked about in so many different ways, but it's usually been talked about within IT. Like we need to make a self-service platform for developers. That's like a big one. Applications are key. They're the center of everything. We need to make sure that you, we increase development developer velocity. We need to make sure that we enable innovation and that needs to be self-service and all the infrastructure has to be transparent, all that stuff. That conversation has been going on for quite some time and it's getting deeper and richer. But I think that then what you're talking about is coming exactly. outside of IT, having that conversation outside of the technology department. And I'm using air quotes, even though I'm on a podcast here and saying, look, this is everyone. We are a technology company. Everyone is on the hook for making good technology decisions. And the CIO is going to be the one who's going to be the ambassador 
for that transformation and not just the digital transformation doesn't just mean everything, you know, has got IoT and you've got digital and everything, you've got apps running everything. That transformation really, you know, that idea of digital transformation is really changing to know that we need to change the way the organization functions, the way the organization is or literally organized. And that person to be the one potentially in certain companies when the company's ready for it to be the champion for that that change. Are you seeing that? That's exactly right. And and to pick up what you said is that you've thought of self-service as happening inside of IT, and you're absolutely right. But what we're talking about is happening outside of IT. Well, you know, what CIOs are working hard to do is even eliminate that distinction between inside IT and outside of IT. So take the concept of, I like of, that. I like that. of agile development or product management. So it used to be, we used to do projects. We'd get a project funded at the beginning of a year or what have you, and then we would deliver on that project and hopefully not run out of money and hopefully do it on time. And at the end, <laughs> we would deliver it to our business, quote, customer. And hopefully, even though the project took three months, six months, hopefully, even though we never checked in with one another, we never really made sure that the that we were iterating and that we were getting positive feedback the whole way. And then lo and behold, three, six months later, the business partner says, oh yeah, I don't even need that thing anymore. That's not at all what I wanted. Now we just wasted a lot of money and a lot of time. Well, we don't, you know, forward-looking organizations are not doing that anymore. They're eliminating the concept of a project and they're replacing that with the concept of a product. And a product leader, and that product can be something that goes out into the market for revenue, but a product can also be an internal system. It's something we're putting out into that market. That market be, could be internal to the company, like a new video collaboration platform, or the product could be external. It could be, you know, a new app or something. But the idea is that the, there's a product leader, and that product leader isn't managing a project. That product leader is is ensuring that a capability gets developed to meet a commercial need. And that product leader is often not in the IT organization. They might come from marketing, they might come from product, they might come from supply chain, they could come from anywhere. But on their team, they've got somebody from development, somebody from security, somebody from operations, somebody from marketing, if it's an, if it's, if it's an external product. So this design of this new sort of democratization of IT or this new digital organization it includes the, the the movement from managing projects in IT and then delivering them out to the business and rather making one cross-functional team that is this in IT or in the business? The answer is yes. It's in both. Yes. So that has been a made that moving to a product management model or moving into agile development has a been a real tool for CIOs in creating this de more democratic organization. And that's such a powerful idea, Martha. And because two things. One is, you know, that shifting the focus of the organization, like you talked about, fundamentally organizations have been structured in certain ways for a very, very long time. And some of that, especially in some industries, some organizations, that change is happening very, very slowly. But two, the second piece is that change is happening in some organizations, some Correct. much faster than others. And so yes. I want to kind of bring it back then to sort of the, the perspective of the CIO or the, the aspiring CIO or the CIO that wants to move to another company. How pervasive is that idea? And how should a CIO, a CTO, a CISO who's looking to find their next chapter in their career, how should they be looking at this movement with regards to their own experience, their own perspectives, their own vision, and their own skill set so that when they're talking to another company, they're deciding, well, how far along this journey or along this trajectory or transformation is this company that I'm looking at? Should I be looking for a company that's that's moving in that direction? And what then should I feel like I need to communicate to them 
in order to say that I have the experience, I have the leadership, I've got the vision in order to help continue that journey? What's that? What should I be looking at as like a, a CIO if I'm, if I'm making that move? So I guess the first thing is let's start with your own gut check. Are you a business leader who wants to influence and create that kind of change? Or are you a technologist who loves the technology, who loves to develop, who loves to lead engineering teams to create new intellectual property? Which are you? And that's the first thing, because if you're a deep technologist, a real CTO, there's tremendous opportunity for you. You don't have to worry about going to Silicon Valley. There's Silicon Valleys all over the place, but you could go be a deep technology, advanced technology person person who does nothing all day but work with engineers to create really, really cool artificial intelligence platforms, either for sale or for your company. So first decide, if you love the tech more than you love the people and the influence and the strategy and the change (laughs) management and all of that, go that route because you'll have a very rich and, and highly lucrative career. If you want to be a CIO and eventually a chief digital officer, which is kind of the next rung, although I do believe there will be a point where the concept of digital just goes away. We are digital. How often do we have to say digital? <laughs> when something when something means everything, does it mean anything? Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of that. And There's think, a lot of that. Think- and marketing's partially to blame for that. <laughs> For for sure. Now, digital, the concept of digital now connotes change. We're moving from what we were to what we're going to be. And until we get there, we will still use that concept, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But the CIO who says, I want to have a major impact, the first thing is look at your resume. Make sure that your resume has business impact, change, digital data. How have you created data as an asset? for your business. Oh, I love that. Maybe, data is an asset. Maybe you, maybe you had nothing. Maybe your company had no data anywhere and you were able to give a modicum of data that allows your company to look backwards <laughs> in order to make decisions for the future. Great. That's business intelligence. But maybe you came into an organization that was already pretty mature there. And what you did is you actually put in an artificial intelligence platform that allows your claims processing organization to be that much more accurate and that much more efficient. Get that stuff on your resume. Don't say you rolled out global instance of SAP. That's great. Mm. But what was the point of that? Exactly. What was the business impact of that? What, so the first thing is if you go to your – if you look at your resume and you're like, eh, I don't really feel that I had a lot of business impact. That's not really that important to me. Then you haven't passed step one. I wouldn't bother. I would go a CTO route. But if you feel that you've done a lot already in that regard, then what you're looking for in an opportunity – in a new business opportunity is you are looking for the a culture that is ready for this change. Because if you get in there and what you see that is right for the company is that we start selling products that have data in them, or we start coming up with new revenue models, or we do something truly transformational that you believe this company absolutely needs, and maybe the CEO agrees with you, But those business partners say, hey, I've been doing this this way for 30 years. What you're saying sounds like too much change for me. (laughs) Then you won't be successful. That's a red flag. So, you know, you're never going to walk into a new opportunity where everything's lined up perfectly and everybody's ready for the change and they're already organized and they're just ready for you to come in and set the strategy. That First of all, that wouldn't be the most gratifying experience anyway. and, And those really don't exist. So it's to come in and assess And I would say some of this, Yadin, also kind of boils down to money. If you come in and you say, all right, 
company. You've told me you want to grow X percent. You want to expand into these markets. You want to do more digital engagement. And I have put together a plan and a funding approval request where I have shown you the, the return on this investment. Are you going to say yes or are you going to say no, CFO and CEO? And if the worst situation for a CIO to be in is to be accountable for outcomes that the business will not pony up the money for. So mm-hmm. going in and, you know, I wouldn't do this on your first interview. The first interview is you just want to, <laughs> you just want to win the right to come back. That's all you want yeah. in the first interview. Just win the right to come back. And how do you win the right to come back during that interview? You're strategic. You're a really good communicator. Oh, here's a key one team development. Because of the tightness of the market now, your ability to go and outside of your company and acquire and bring good people in, that's half of what the new company is looking at you for. Is, are ah, you going to be able see, this to- this is the good. Yeah. Are you going to be this able to- This is the goods right here. <laughs> are you going to- This is what we want to get into. <laughs> but it's, are you going to be able to fill these seats? We've got 50 open positions in IT. Are you going to be able to come in? Have you, Do you have a track record of building that organization? So let me, let me just put a fine point on this. For a CIO to be considered a highly qualified candidate, they need to be a really good communicator. They need to demonstrate that they're not an order taker executing on somebody else's strategy, that they themselves are strategic thinkers, but it's not my way or the highway. They're really good collaborators. So that business partnership relationship piece is extremely important. They understand how to run a high performing IT organization and they can prove that through metrics. That's what companies are looking for. And then the cultural fit piece. And that's where, you know, we're going way back to the beginning of your and my conversation where we were talking about recruiting. That's where there's a little bit of like matchmaking going on. It's you want to bring, you know, if you've ever set anybody up on on a blind date, you think, oh, these two are perfect for one another. And then they hate each other. There's just a level of cultural fit that has to be there that you, you cannot really, you can't fake it. So either you're going to be a cultural fit or you aren't. But then the key thing there is, are you a fit for the culture as it is? Or if you're a fit for the culture as it needs to be in order for the company to be successful in a digital world. So that that's the other consideration. So those are the things that you need to display in an interview. But for you, the question is, are these executive committee members who will be my colleagues, are they the team? that is going to be my partner in creating change. And if you're looking around and you're seeing a lot of people who metaphorically are crossing their arms and you're thinking, yep, that one's not a change agent, that one's not a change mm-hmm. agent, that one's <laughs> and you're going to be alone and you're not going to be successful. So it, it's a two-way street. They got to evaluate you, you got to evaluate them. But what everybody is evaluating the other one for is, are, is this combination going to help us transform into being a digital business because no business is immune from that. No, I think that's so, it distills that idea down to one of the the really core pillars of what both the company and the candidate need to consider when they're trying to make kind of come, come together and, and see if something really is going to be created here. I like to talk about that Venn diagram of like that crossover of what the company needs, what the company's looking for, and then what the skill of the individual is and what the individual is looking for. And there's that overlap, that Venn diagram where those two meet for a certain period of time. Sometimes it's two years, sometimes it's 16 years. But so one of my other colleagues calls that riding the wave. And that Venn diagram is that represents that period of time where the wave is, you know, right before the wave breaks and then rolls back to make a Hunter S. Thompson reference. And, <laughs> and 
that's that point that you're looking for. You're looking for, and you get to be the one who is just the architect of that Venn diagram and bringing those two together and seeing if that fit happens. And that kind of brings me sort of to the last point I really think is really important to cover is when you're a candidate or when you're a company, and we're really, I guess we're really looking from the, the CIO's perspective in this, how is it best to use the wonderful talents and experience of the recruiter in order to make sure that your Venn diagram is fitting well? Because I imagine... Martha, that you engage in, you know, what I'd like to call therapy, which is in this case, candidate therapy or company therapy, where you're like taking them on a journey where like, okay, we need to, like you talked about, what do you really want? What is important to you? Let's get those straight first and let's make sure it's realistic. And then let's, let's move you along the journey in order to be able to achieve that. Do you feel like you engage in a little bit of candidate therapy and, and should candidates really make sure that they're utilizing that, that, that part of your skill set? Sure. So I'll just, it's candidate therapy and it's client therapy, but it's very interesting because early, early on in my career, really early in, in recruiting, I had a client and they really liked one of these candidates that I had presented. And the candidate in the 11th hour said, you know what? I, I really like my company. I don't think I'm ready to make a move. Well, I wanted to make this placement. So I convinced him. I said, what are you talking about? My client is great. You want to go here, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Well, he didn't last long. And that's when I realized mm. you have to be careful in your influence, right? I influence. He did not want this job. And I like put the screws to him <laughs> and he wound up <laughs> taking the job and then it blew up. He wound up leaving because mm. he wasn't happy. So it's part of it is recognizing what that candidate really wants, not what you want mm -hmm. as a recruiter and not what your client wants. So that's part of it. But I'll, I'll tell you one other quick story. I had a, a search recently where the client had been introduced to a candidate, not through me, through a peer or whatever. And he was a great leader and he knew the organization well, and he'd be a really good cultural fit. But he wasn't an experienced IT leader. He was He had some technology acumen but I said to my client, your IT organization is not mature enough for you to have a new CIO who doesn't come out of IT. Mm -hmm. I understand <laughs> that you like this person, that he's a good leader and all of that. But the other thing is, he's never going to be in his comfort zone. He's always going to be sort of trying to lead in areas that are his comfort zone, that are in IT. So that was, again, and my client listened to me and they made a great hire and it's worked out. So I think it's, you know, the therapy thing that you're talking about. And as a recipient of many, many years of therapy, I feel <laughs> that I have <laughs> well, I you know, to offer. <laughs> they're professionals. They help you, you know, get from A to B, you know, you want to go on that journey? Absolutely. <laughs> you're stuck in your Absolutely. own head. <laughs> it's about going through life with eyes wide open. Exactly. That's, that's, the, that's exactly. the idea. But but the point being, as a broker, you have to know in your heart what is right for the candidate and what is right for the client so that you can use your powers of influence wisely. One example I gave you, I did not use my powers wisely and it blew up. In another example, I had the courage of my confidence to say, hey, buddy, I know you like this guy. He's not going to be right for you. So I think that's the most important thing is to really understand what the right outcome is and to influence and use that therapy appropriately. I would say we, I do more therapy with the candidate than with the client. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Client usually knows what they need. What the candidate says, oh, I'm not sure. I don't know how it went. I'm not sure what to do. That's usually where the therapy comes in.
Well, Martha, this has been absolutely fascinating. I think you provided just some phenomenal perspective. Um, there's so many different ways I could have gone with this, including reorganizing companies, looking to reorganize companies, and how you could do it as a prospective CIO and a new entrance in a, in a company. But we're going to have to, unfortunately, stop it right there. Um, I appreciate all of the experience and give a give the, the listeners a sense of if they want to learn more about what you're doing or maybe some other perspectives and other places you provide them, can can they reach out to you? Can they find you on social media, Twitter? Is there, is there any place that they can, they can find you? in the digital world? The answer is yes. Yes. You'll find me. Go out there. It's my, if you <laughs> just go out there, She's just there. go out there. I'm out there. I'm everywhere. <laughs> oh, that's phenomenal. All right. And you didn't let me say you, I started out early in my career. I did something called talk CIO or talk radio mm -hmm. CIO at CIO magazine. This nice. is early days. I mean, we're talking like, oh, yeah. you know, literally 20, 22 years ago. And, and I did this, I interviewed uh, CIOs and other people for CIO magazine. And I was really proud of what I did, but you do a much better job. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for the kind words, Martha, especially with your experience. That means a lot to me. Um, but I'm just, I'm relentlessly curious yes. and that's just what drives me. And I just I keep, I keep moving. I'll get, I'll give you one little sort of anecdote too, is actually, I literally on my office wall, I literally have pictures and quotes from CIOs, everyone from Cynthia Stoddard at Adobe to people at Ford and just what they say. And when I'm talking to people or I'm, before I'm interviewing, I'm looking, I'm like, will this help them? Will this help them? If they listen to this, they listen to this. Is this going to help move the forward? Yes. So it's just a little, getting a little meta there, but that's, that's, that's my perspective. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's great. That's yes. right. It's your North star. Excellent. All right, Yadin. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Martha, for joining the CIO Exchange podcast. Okay. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this latest episode. Please consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more insights from technology leaders, as well as global research on key topics, visit vmware.com slash CIO.